T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. Ray, let's go. Lawrence Holmes. Noon to 2 on Sports Radio 670 The Score in Odyssey Station. Sox Machine. Jim Margulis, co-host of the Sox Machine podcast. It's either pure stubbornness or hubris, but there's no case for... Larry batting third. The internet's longest running White Sox podcast. That period of time where the White Sox were spending over $50 million on the bullpen makes me think there was some mismanagement. There was a little bit of fixating too much on individual moves and losing the thread on the shape of the team. And I think the Kimbrel trade bailed him out a little bit. Managing editor of SoxMachine.com. Rick Hahn often manages the team like he's going to be the one cleaning up the mess eight years from now. If they do sign that Marcus Semien deal, if they do sign that Manny Machado contract, like other GMs would say, well, if this doesn't work, I'm fired anyway. So I'm going to leave it for the next guy. I'm going to go for glory and at least have a ring to show for it for my next job. Jim Margulis with Lawrence Holmes on 670 The Score. We want machine. Socks machine. We are going to have the guys from the Socks Machine podcast join us every Friday at 1 o'clock to talk about the White Sox and There's a lot to talk about with this team right now after dropping three straight games to the Cleveland Guardians. Jim Margulis now joins me on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Jim, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. So do I get the bad weeks and Josh gets the good weeks? Yeah, I mean, that's how it's setting up. Like the the, the White Sox were winning series and and then they have this this strange set of circumstances with a, a couple of games that are, are rained out or snowed out, and then they get swept in, in the three game the shortened three game series with Cleveland. What was the most upsetting part of what you saw over the last two days of White Sox baseball? Well, I think it would have to be the defense. Uh, Coming into the series, I had reservations about how difficult it would be just because Cleveland, uh, the way Cleveland is built is designed to frustrate the White Sox. Uh, The rotation is all right-handers with good command, which can uh, stump a White Sox offense that hits lefties better than righties. The lineup that they have is contact-oriented, so somebody like Dylan Cease isn't going to get strikeouts by accident. He has to be pretty good. You know, he can't really make mistakes with sliders in the zone, or he can't expect him to chase all that much. So, you know, he made some mistakes, and he had an ordinary outing as opposed to the the, the, the superlative stuff he was dealing the first two times out. So, 
I thought this might be a hard series for them to win a little bit of a reality check, but just the defense, Tim Anderson uh, getting really sloppy with his throws, um, you know, Jose Abreu having a, a missing a scoop that he'd usually make and then not snaring a line drive that goes through the five hole uh, and, 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 you know, pushing the game out of reach. They never led. They never even tied once Cleveland grab, grabbed the lead. It was just a mess all around. And it, it was one of those series where it looked like uh Preparation took a back seat. Yeah, I agree with you. And and even on yesterday's game, they weren't errors, but the balls where you had Leori hit to you in a shift and not be able to throw a guy out at first base. You had another ball that went up the middle, and yes, it's a tough chance, but he wasn't able to make that throw too. These are things that aren't necessarily errors, but it is a, a continuation of what's been bad defense. Yeah, it was a little bit of the ALDS uh, relapse uh, where the Astros seemed to have, you know, all their ground balls went through holes, uh, you know, eight hoppers um, just bounding by outstretched gloves, whereas the White Sox, every grounder they hit turned into double plays or outs and never even got rallies going. So, you know, that was a concern. I know going into the offseason, going into spring training, Rick Hahn talked around it and said that, you know, raw shifts wasn't the number to look at. It was more about the effectiveness of shifts, which – is true. I mean, you know, that's, I think Rick Hahn's strength is saying things that are, are, are true. It's just uh, when it, when it comes to just the, you know, the idea of um, positioning and, and, and how grounders are still getting through Dallas Keuchel, like, you know, Keuchel's start was historically bad. There's only been one other start in White Sox history where a pitcher uh, recorded only three outs and gave up 10 runs. And the other one was in 1934. Mm. And, but you know, also he had four errors behind him. He had, you know, basically he should have been out of the first four outs and eight pitches and said he only got three outs and threw 48. You know, the idea of Keuchel being that like his first 50 pitches, you have to make the most of them because I think the next 50 pitches, the second time through is going to be messy and they failed him on that regard. So it's, yeah, there's a case where just the infield defense it shouldn't be that bad when you look at, um, you know, Anderson has improved to be a sturdy defender out there. He's not a sensational defender, not going to be a gold glover, but he really cut down on the errors. But this was just kind of a, almost a relapse to his rookie season and just the plays within his range making them poorly. Uh, then you had, you know, Abreu getting sloppy a little bit. You had uh, Berger just, you know, whiffing on a throw. You had Garcia kind of being out of position or not you know, being too passive with the shift and, and, you know, handling, letting a grounder come to him in shallow right field and not getting the out in time. It was just a, yeah, it was, it was not good. Jim Margulis of the Sox Machine Podcast joining me here to talk about the White Sox as they have that horrible series in Cleveland. They get ready to start a series against the Minnesota Twins tonight if weather allows. How did you feel about the Joe McEwing sends? Were they good sends or were they bad sends? Well, the first one where Adam Engel was cut down at home plate, I would call that a bad send um, just because it was the first out at home plate. In his defense, I think it was Josh Harrison and Adam Hazley were the sitters up and they struck out. So it did, um, I guess, justify the idea that this might be the best scoring opportunity he has in front of him. But, you know, generally speaking with third base coaches, if they get nobody thrown out, they're doing their jobs poorly because there are a lot of, uh, a lot of runs that can be scored on relays and, and, and short hops to the plate that don't get corralled. So, you know, it does pay to be aggressive, even if it backfires sometimes. 
The second send I thought was his fault. I thought he was getting carried away or just really like, you know, I guess showing zero faith in the offense, except then you saw the replay and you saw that, uh, you know, Larry was running up on Robert basically 30 feet behind him and that if he tried to hold up Robert, then, you know, Garcia would have been trapped or Garcia might have run past Robert, uh, not, you know, knowing who the sign was for. And uh, that was a case where just, you know, McEwing had to send him because Robert was trapped. And it was, uh, you know, it looked ridiculous, especially like during the real time replay where you could only see the throw coming into home and Robert wasn't in the picture yet. But having seen the replay, that was a, it was a base running mistake. Not, you know, it was a deep drive to right field. And the fact that the, you know, Fran Mule Reyes and Wright got his glove on it showed that Robert was correct in holding the bag and tagging up and Garcia was fine going like halfway three quarters in case it was dropped. But then after the ball hit the ground, um, everybody lost the thread. Yeah, it, it definitely seemed that way. Before Robert gets hurt with the groin injury, he, for the mm-hmm. most part, was having terrible at-bats. How worried are you about the at-bats? And then we can talk about the injury. Well, you know, it seemed like last year he closed up his biggest weakness, which was fastballs. Like, uh, you know, in his rookie year, had a great first month, second month, they threw him fastballs out of the zone and they threw him sliders away. And he couldn't, he was in between, he was late on fastballs and he was uh, over the top on the breaking balls. Uh, and, and so something had to give, something had, you know, he, he at least had to make one correction. And he made that big correction with fastballs last year. And it seemed like the league was slow to adjust or, you know, trying to keep him honest or throwing him bad breaking balls, what have you. But nothing was fooling him. This year, the fastball percentage has come down. The breaking ball percentage has come up. And so maybe there are fewer fastball counts. Maybe he's uh, – it looks like he's just a little bit too aggressive and anticipating fastballs might have to have a – a better approach on defending the breaking ball, even if he isn't going to hit them as hard as he does the fastballs. But it seemed like before the groin injury, he had a couple of nice at-bats, a, a rocket off the left field fence and progress the field, and then a single the other way that showed he was starting to understand how he was being pitched and, and, and seeing that adjustment being made. And then, of course, he <laughs> injures himself again, running hard to first base on the ground or the left side. And, and yeah, that's... That's concerning. Yeah, it's concerning, and I, I, I look, I, I can't get mad at anybody for injuries. Like, it's not like guys are trying to get injured, but n- n- with this team, do you feel like they, they have a lot of depth? Do they have mm-hmm. enough depth to continue to weather these type of injuries? I think they do. Is lo- I, I think the problem is they do except part of that depth is Adam Angle, who has his own uh, history with injuries. So you yep. don't feel great about everything relying on him just because he's shown that you know, he can pull up gingerly or he can you know, injure himself in the field. So that's a case where you know, just uh, the White Sox, I think, tried to get out in front of this by changing up their strength and conditioning coordinator and promoting Goldie Simmons uh, from the minor league system. And he had some success in helping you know, guys like Jake Berger and Gavin Sheets reshape their bodies and be a little bit more athletic uh, to cover more positions um, you know, without injuring themselves. So I think they tried to get out ahead of it. And, and whether there are some, you know, I don't know, muscle imbalances or just cold weather stuff, bad luck still coming through, uh, getting in the way. I guess the good news is they have experience with Robert being out, with Jimenez being hobbled. You know, he's dealing with an ankle injury, and then with Makati either not being available or not being himself. So they have experience in weathering this. 
But last year, they also had a really good run of luck in getting everybody's like best two weeks sequentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went from like your mean Mercedes to Jake Lamb to Brian Goodwin to Jake Berger to Gavin Sheets to Adam Engel to like they were just stringing all these guys either coming up from AAA or coming up you know off the IL and giving them a great two weeks, and then they'd fade away, and then somebody else would step up in a big way and. You know, I wonder what last year would have looked like if your mean Mercedes April never existed. Like if we never had that phenomenon, just because he bought them a month in a position of great need uh, before Andrew Vaughn had started establishing himself um, before, you know, they had really stabilized the outfield with Jimenez being out and, and uh, Larusa trying to uh, softly introduce Vaughn to major league pitching. And if Mercedes never existed, or, or at least like that, that month never existed, uh, would they have been able to run away with the division? And uh, I think this year you're going to see their metal being tested more. Like last year, so many decisions after the All-Star break were so inconsequential, so many bad starts you could just shrug at um, just because their postseason chances are basically locked up uh, after the All-Star break. And we didn't exactly know just exactly how they would fare if they had to produce in pressure situations. So I think this year – for better or for worse, should be uh, yeah. The, the division looks a little deeper. The league, just the American League in general, looks tougher, and they should have uh, their you know we should have an idea of their resiliency, of their ability to uh, step up and not just be adequate but be above average, even when their lineup isn't necessarily the best. It was a net negative yesterday because Leori made some defensive plays and maybe a base running play that was problematic. Is it a big deal that he bats third in a lineup? I don't think it's a bad idea once. Like, I remember Jim Leland, and he was a disciple of Tony LaRusso. Like, when he was with the Tigers, he would uh, they would bring guys up from AAA, or, you know, they would have a guy slumping. He would bat him leadoff. And, you know, even if it wasn't a great idea on paper to bat him leadoff or bat him third, what have you, in the middle of things, you know, it was his way of saying to his young player or a struggling player, like, look, you're a major leaguer. You're up here, so we believe in you. So we're not going to hide you. Just go out there and, and, and play your game. And so I think, you know, when it comes to individual lineup decisions, I don't get too wrapped up in them. Basically speaking, as long as the top six hitters are hitting in the top six spots in whatever order, uh, it, it's more or less fine. I don't get too wrapped up in that. So I, I just think, you know, Garcia batting third once was – you know, I don't like it. I don't get it. I don't think there's a benefit for it. Uh, but at least, you know, I, I've seen other teams do it. Other successful managers do it. And, you know, the, the, the world still turns <laughs> and, and the, the team still finishes in first place. So it doesn't bother me in an isolated example, but seeing it two times in a row when the White Sox are struggling to score two runs a game, uh, when he, you know, you have so many other hitters who are much worthy, you know, much more worthy of hitting in the top six spots like Garcia shouldn't be hitting there, you know, even, you know, in a normal lineup, even if he's hitting well, that's not his job. His job is to bat eighth or ninth, uh, hold down second base and maybe, you know, do some rotations in the outfield and and nobody's supposed to think much about him and whatever production he gives you is fine. Why Larusa is so intent on making people think about him. I don't really understand. Like that's the luxury of, you know, this White Sox offense, especially when everybody's involved, is that uh, it was supposed to make second base an afterthought, especially after the White Sox acquired A.J. Pollock for right field. Like, there were more bats than spots. They had multiple ideas for second base, so you could rotate through, uh, you know, play the hot hand or 
rotate guys out if they weren't working. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, a couple weeks into the season, uh, it seems like they're getting away from that. And just, uh, I don't know, this, it, it feels like, you know, LaRusa is trying to be uh, reassuring to one of his favorite players, but it also doesn't seem like it reads the room at all. <laughs> also, I think it just, uh, it, it's, it's elevating Garcia and ignoring or downplaying or, or acting indifferent to struggles elsewhere. Jim, what do you guys have planned for the Sox Machine podcast this weekend? Well, hopefully we're talking about better baseball. It's our first look at the Twins this year. It's our first look at Byron Buxton in more than a year. Like the White Sox didn't see him at all in 2021. So I was really looking forward to a Byron Buxton, Luis Robert showdown. And I don't think it's maybe there's something against having the two of them on the field at the same time that uh, one of them has to leave. And so it's Robert's turn to bow out. But I think we're going to be learning a lot about just, uh, you know, I guess the next turn through the White Sox rotation, uh, learning a little bit more about what's behind Dylan Cease. Uh, I'm going to be in, I'm in Nashville. The Charlotte Knights are in Nashville. Johnny Cueto is supposed to start on Saturday. So I'll be at that game and we'll be talking about what he might have to offer the White Sox rotation. And then Lucas Giolito is back on Sunday. So hopefully by the next time we talk or the next time you and Josh talk, we'll have a little bit more depth. That's, uh, that's reassuring. Yeah, I, I would hope that that is the case. Jim, fantastic voyage, our our premier voyage with you. Thank you so much for being available. Sox Machine Podcast is out there. People should subscribe. They should give it five stars. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure. That is Jim Margulis of the Sox Machine Podcast. He and Josh Nelson are going to tag team back again. Josh will be on one Friday, and then Jim will be on the other, but we wanted to make sure that we were doing – Cool stuff with the Sox Machine podcast, guys. Bulls, Bucks, Game 3, which you'll hear on our sister station tonight, WBBM News Radio 780. Tonight at 7.30, we are going to preview it. Cody Westerland from our staff. He's always great. He's in the room. He's talking with the people. He'll tell you what he thinks about this series now that it's tied one apiece next here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. I mean, it's the playoffs. You know, every guy on this team is a competitor. You know, it don't matter what you did in, in a regular season. You know, it's, it's a brand new start, brand new mindset. You know, you, you can see it in, in all the guys. And, you know, it don't matter if we lost. 20 times to those guys. You know, this is a new opportunity for us to go out there and compete, and, you know, we got to take advantage of it. That was DeMar DeRozan. Apparently, we're supposed to meet him in the trap because that's where it's going down. I'm Lawrence Holmes here with you until 2 o'clock. If you tuned in, you're like, hey, aren't the Cubs supposed to be playing? Well, they were, but if you look outside your window, you'll see that it's raining here. They've moved the game back to a 7.05 first pitch. You'll hear our pregame on the score starting at 6.30. That means that the Bulls game will be on our sister station, WBBM News Radio 780. So listen accordingly. If you're like, I want Chuck and Bill, 7.80 tonight at 7.30 tonight, you'll be able to hear them make the call of game three. Cody Westerland covers the Bulls for us. Ordinarily, we talk to him on Tuesdays, but... It's the playoffs, so more Bulls means more Cody. He joins me now on the Circuit Resort and Casino Hotline. Circuit Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Cody, it's actually really nice to have you on after a win 
against one of the best teams in the league because we didn't get a chance to do that very often during the season. We sure didn't get to do it very often during the season when the Bulls played good teams, right? Elite teams. That was the uh, maybe, what, third win against an elite team this year if you want to include one win against the Celtics and Mavericks for the Bulls. But, hey, Lawrence, like the Bulls are on to something here just with their formula on defense. Like I expect this game... Game three at the United Center tonight and the remainder of this series, however long it goes, I expect it to be close and hard fought because what we see in the first two games uh, so far, this is something that the Bulls can certainly replicate and something that the the Bucs have struggled to handle a little bit so far. What defensively are the Bulls doing well? Well, you see Giannis is still throwing up numbers, but what I like from the Bulls so far is that they've kind of stunted what the Bucks have done from a game flow perspective, right? When you wall off Giannis and the Bulls are, are sending different looks at him, sometimes it's a double on the catch. Sometimes it's a help defender a little later. Sometimes it's two help defenders from both sides. The Bulls have been able to recover out of that position and just kind of interrupt the rhythm of the rest of the Bucks' offense. And I think the Bucks haven't made good enough adjustments from my perspective here in the series in the sense that while Giannis is getting his points, while he was still 11 of 20 from the field in game two, it feels like sometimes it's a one-on-one Giannis attack and then it's like a reset. And to me, that's when the Bulls have initially done their job and won a possession against the Bucks. And you've seen when, for example, Drew Holiday has been asked to do more off the bounce as a one-on-one creator instead of being in the flow of the offense, for example, Uh, He struggled in this series so far. He had six turnovers in game two, and that's a guy we've praised a lot on this show. You love him. I love watching Drew Holiday play as a basketball player, two-way player on both ends, but he hasn't been good so far. So it's like that second layer of efficiency and just weapons haven't been there for the Bucs so far when the Bulls can hold Giannis off on a possession, and that's chipped away, and it's only getting harder for the Bucks too here with Chris Middleton ruled out the rest of the series with an ML- MCL sprain uh, in his left knee. So uh, that's kind of what the Bulls have done so far. What's the status of Bobby Portis? Yeah, he wasn't on the Bucks' latest injury report, so he should be able to play here in Game 3 at the United Center. I don't know how hampered he will be after basically bleeding from his eye the other night and not playing the rest of Game 2 after catching an early elbow from Tristan Thompson. So you got to wonder what's Bobby's effectiveness level and just comfort in seeing the basket. And this is something in Chicago we've seen before. Derrick Rose, what, four or five years ago, got cracked in the eye in training camp. Heck, that was maybe even longer ago. It's been a long time since the Derrick era. Uh, maybe that was six years ago or so. But we've seen uh, uh, guys here in Chicago say, you know, I see three baskets and I'm aiming for the middle one, I think Derrick Rose famously said one time. Uh, So Bobby Portis, maybe he has goggles on, something like that. I don't know, but he should be ready to play for the Bucs. But again, uh, another ailment for Milwaukee to deal with that might make life a little bit more difficult for their guys. What does Milwaukee miss when Chris Middleton isn't available? Yeah, that's a a good question, and it's really important. He's a very dangerous three-point threat. His efficiency from long range was down a little bit this year, but he's still a really feared three-point shooter. We saw he got it going in the third quarter to help the Bucks push back and rally a little bit against the Bulls in game two before Chicago held him off. But he's their number two guy, really, in many ways. Their second leading scorer, 
but he's a guy with really good length when you're looking at 6'7 and a longer wingspan than that. Part of the reason the Bucks are so big, everyone thinks Brooke Lopez, obviously, and then you put Giannis at power forward, but Chris Middleton's really big and long and smart for an NBA small forward, and they use that length, they leverage that length to make life more difficult uh, for teams defensively, but again, he's a guy that off the bounce can create a little bit for them, dead-eye free-throw shooter as well, so it really puts a massive burden on Holiday to create off the bounce. Because when you look at the Bucks, like a lot of teams, you know, you, a lot of teams have three primary offensive guys, three primary creators. We see that with the Bulls, with Zach and Vooch and Demar to varying degrees. Well, for the Bucks, that's Giannis, that's Middleton and Holiday, and now they're down one of their three primary offensive creators uh, who can create stuff. So that makes it difficult. Bigger burden on Giannis, but I think that really really pinpoints the spotlight on Drew Holiday. What can he do for Milwaukee as a creator? And can he step up and be a lot better than he was in the first two games of the series? Cody, you brought it up earlier, the the defense that the Bulls have played against Giannis. And I think you and I are on the same page. Even though he had 33-18-9, the Bulls did a good job of frustrating Giannis. And I wonder if he recognizes that. Or if is this the game where Giannis is like, you know what? I'm just going to go out here and get 60 and 20 and we'll win the game. Because as weird as it sounds, I think that plays into what the Bulls are trying to do defensively. Yeah, what you're saying basically there is let Giannis get his, but don't let anyone else have an offensive flow, which you certainly understand. But somewhere is that threshold, right? Like if Giannis goes for 40 or 45, the Bucks are probably going to win the game. So it's a dangerous proposition for the Bulls. And I think... One of the things the Bulls have done well is get into Giannis's space, whether that's the primary defender or whether it's Alex Caruso, DeMar DeRozan rotating over on help defense and being there and arriving at the block. And sometimes the Bulls have got those charge calls. Sometimes it's been a block call and Giannis has gone to the free throw line. But that makes life difficult on him. And that's one of the things like Giannis has probably handled adversity and transformed as a player better than anyone in the NBA over the last five years, just with his just a rocket case of improvement in so many areas of, of his game. So he's going to be able to handle this. He's going to respond. He's going to respond well and continue putting up his numbers here uh, for the Bulls the rest of the series, or against the Bulls the rest of the series. But the Bulls do need to keep getting in that space. You've seen Stacey King's pointing this out several times on the broadcast. The Bulls' defense has been at its worst in the series when Patrick Williams or any other primary on-ball defender against Giannis starts backpedaling like the Bulls have to build a wall and stand strong somewhere around the three-point or free-throw line because if Giannis gets an inch of space or, or a foot of space to put that shoulder down uh, and get to the hoop, it's over for the Bulls because it seems like he can dunk from anywhere within 10 or 12 feet of the basket with one step, which is basically literally true for that guy. So that's what the Bulls have to do. They cannot give him that space at all even when you're 15, 16 feet away from the hoop. At some point, you have to go chest-to-chest with him, and they've done it well enough, I think, here early in the series. they got to make sure they keep doing that, though. Do the Bulls have enough resources to deal with Brooke Lopez? I mean, probably not in the sense that uh, he's really long and tall and has got behind that Bulls defense, and Vooch is being asked to do so much by way of recovering and pick and rolls, um, being at the point of attack on those screens, stepping out not too far, but obviously um, Billy has noted many times you don't want him dropping too deep. But like 
Lopez has got behind the Bulls defense sometimes because Vooch needs to go up near the point of attack on that screen because the Bulls don't want to give the Bucks too much space. So, I mean, I think if what you're asking, he's a tough guy to defend when Brooke Lopez can step out and hit threes. And he's played a lot better, actually, I think, than a lot of people than, than what I expected, not just in this playoff series, but late in the regular season after having um, the serious back injury for so long in the regular season. He's looked really good. So I expect him to take on a little bit bigger role for the Bucks. I would expect him to keep scoring because they've needed it. He's looked good. And he's a little bit of a matchup problem just for the Bulls when you're asking Vooch to go so many different places on the floor and so much attention is on Giannis. So if you're asking me, do I expect the Bulls to shut Brooke Lopez down? No, the answer really isn't. If you're looking at it from a Bucks perspective, you're like, do we really need Brooke Lopez a lot to step up or continue to be efficient with Middleton out? The answer is yes. And whether he knocks down those shots probably has a lot to, to do with the outcomes of game three, game four, game five, however long this goes. How important was the performance by Nikola Vucevic in, in game two of this series? He's been awesome, Lawrence. I mean, he, he's basically been just spectacular at everything in this series except his perimeter shooting in game one and, and missing one or two bunnies at the rim in a game where everyone uh, seemed to be missing a lot of shots. He, he's got his hand in passing lanes. He's helped make life more difficult on Giannis, which is important because as much as you hope Patrick Williams can, can be that defender, I think Giannis is shooting 64, 65% on Patrick Williams as a primary defender in this series. Vooch is just a bigger, stronger body. So if he can get to a point on a possession where he doesn't have to move laterally or he's he's in the right spot laterally to start the play, like he's doing a good job from there. Like he's a good defender from that point when he doesn't have to move side to side too much. So rebounding been awesome. Knocked down four of six, or excuse me, four of eight, I think from three-point range in game two to stretch the floor. You saw a big possession late where Zach Levine got an open three in the corner in part because the Bucks had to respect Nikola Vucevic on the other side of the floor. This is why they traded for Vooch, right? Like that trade with the Magic looks bad um, from a, a long-distance perspective, I think. When you look at the production he's had, the two first-round picks going for him. Wagner is a real good young player in Orlando. Like um, When you look at it at the end of the day, the war, the win shares, whatever it is from an analytical perspective, the Magic are going to win that trade. The Bulls made that trade for series like this, uh, for performances like this from Vooch in big games against really, really good teams stepping up. He's done it so far. And the tough part for the Bulls here, the Bucks are still the favorite to win this series, I think, in most everyone's mind. Vooch needs to do this four or five more times in the series if the Bulls are going to have any chance to upset the Bucks, And that's still a big question, I think, moving forward. What did you think of Patrick Williams and, and his level of aggression? Because I, I thought it was high. I, I enjoyed watching him play game two. Yeah, he attacked off the bounce more, which is what they need. Nine shots, which is which is fine. It's not a, a, a real high volume um, when you're looking at it from, from everyone's perspective, but nine shots for him uh, when he's the number four or five option offensively is quite a bit actually for Patrick Williams, especially when they're playing a, a team like the Bucks. So he needs to do that again. Like, seems like we keep coming back to this point, right, Lawrence? Like, mm -hmm. the Bulls, they need DeMar DeRozan to keep shooting 50%. They need Nikola Vucevic to continue to be a star in this series. They need Patrick Williams to continue doing what he did in game two. Uh, night and day difference, it, it felt like, from game one, just by way of how much he cut 
when he cut decisively. You saw him get a big dunk on a pass from Alex Caruso. Great find by Alex Caruso late in the game for that big bucket. But Pat did the thing he has to do. He has to recognize it, and then he's got to be decisive. So you like that from him. Uh, really tough driving layup on Brooke Lopez at another big moment. He has to do that as well the rest of the series. Like the margin of error is still so small for the Bulls in this series, even with Middleton out, because the Bucks are that good. And I think the Bulls have that many flaws that can still pop up in this series, especially when you're not a high-volume three-point shooting team. You're starting games behind um, from three-point range, just kind of in the expected points column, I think. So guys like Patrick Williams has to do that again. Vooch has to do that again. These are just... Such valuable minutes for him from a developmental standpoint, too. I think it needs to be noted just anytime he's out there, especially game two, that is just huge for his development moving forward, which is why it was a big deal for the Bulls to get into the playoffs and not just in a play-in game, but playing a really good team where Pat and some of these other young guys, even guys like Zach, haven't been in the situation before. They understand the level the series has to be played at. Uh, is really important for them moving forward for the rest of their careers. And, and this is a big moment for the Bulls tonight moving forward in this series. You're in these press conferences with, with these teams, and it's fun now because the, you know, you're, now you're talking about playoff basketball. Did anything catch your ear from Milwaukee or the Bulls after game two? No, I, I don't think anything out of the ordinary. Like Milwaukee can say what they want about like flipping switches and taking the series more seriously like that will be determined by how they play in game three the Bulls got out to that 9-0 lead the other night I would expect a much better effort from the Bucks from the start in game three I, I think if you're asking the one thing that stood out I don't think it was really the press conferences Lawrence as much as it was probably the video that circulated that Bulls um, the social media team posted on Twitter and some other platforms from the locker room where Billy kind of says, hard fought, whatever, did our job, got to look to game three. And then Alex Crusoe kind of interrupts the locker room and says, guys, it's human nature. Advantage, Bucks, game three, they're the ones coming off um, the rough performance in game two. We're the ones that are naturally just set to have a letdown in game three. I think something outside the press conference, but that kind of obviously surfaced that we see there. I thought maybe that stood out more than anything because Caruso understands that, right? Like he's won an NBA title with the Lakers. He's been in really tough series with the Lakers where they're back and forth or they might've had a tough loss. It's hard to come back and put up the same performance when you're someone like the Bulls in the exact next game, knowing how hungry and determined the Bucks are going to be, knowing that the Bucks understand these things, having been down to the Nets last year in their second round series. I believe they trailed the Hawks as well. Um, at one point, they were trailing the or the Suns 2-0 in the NBA Finals. Like that type of stuff um, in the playoffs. Like I don't think you realize if you haven't been there before. And Alex Caruso realizes that. Demar Derozan realizes that. I don't know how many of the other Bulls realize that, but about 7:30, 7:35, 7:45 p.m. tonight, I think they'll all realize it when they see the Bucks' effort. How are the Bulls going about managing Alex Caruso and his back? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess you can say they're managing it by not playing him 42 minutes. Uh, he played 38 the other night in game two. I think the Bulls needed just about every single one of they them. They absolutely did, Cody. If he played 35 minutes, I don't think they win that game, probably. We saw how crucial he was. We saw that Billy Donovan rested him for about 90 seconds, probably under two minutes in the fourth quarter. 
I think if Caruso had said I could go the whole fourth quarter, Billy might have even played him the whole fourth quarter. Caruso kind of expressed to him, hey, I'm going to need a quick breather. I think Billy found a good moment to do that kind of what nine minute mark to seven, something like that, the fourth quarter where he didn't he didn't wait too late toward the final buzzer to, to give him his rest or anything. So um, the Bulls don't want to play him in the high 30 minutes. That's what they've said. The only path I see really is to play him in the high 30 minutes and maybe they try to avoid low 40s, but you don't know. These are going to be really tough games. Wouldn't be surprised if one of them went to overtime and if that happens, he's going to play five more extra minutes. I just don't think you can take him off the floor. I think as long as you're not worried about a serious long-term injury here, which they are not at all worried about long-term injuries with Alex Caruso, I think you're going to have to trot him out there for every minute that, that he says he can give you. Um, and as long as he's playing well, and he's played well in almost all the minutes he's been on the floor, other than some some three-point shooting hasn't been great at, at times, I think you got to play him because he's that important. Cody, you're a cerebral, clinical guy, and I love that about you. I love that when you bring your, to your coverage. But considering the teams that you've covered over the last few years, how cool is it going to be to cover a Bulls playoff game at the United Center where the Bulls are in a series. Yeah, Chuck noted it on Twitter today, I think. The Bulls haven't won a playoff game at the United Center since 2015 when Derrick Rose hit that that buzzer beater to beat the Cavs in a phenomenal game. It was just electric. And then in 2017 when they were there, right, like the Celtics um, were whooping them in games three, four, and six, I think, at the United Center after the Bulls took those first two. So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, this is a totally different feel, I think, from 2017 too, when the Bucks were, or, excuse me, the Bulls were like an eight seed, and we knew we knew that was like a transitional period of the franchise. Like this is the start of something, right? Like games like this in Game Four on Sunday, whether the Bulls go on to win or lose this series, like you're going to remember these in a couple of years when Patrick Williams is in a big moment in the playoffs, when Zach Levine and the next core of the Bulls, whatever that looks like, are in the next big games, and they succeed or fail, whatever that moment is. Like You're going to remember these nights. It's the defending champs and the Bucks. They have probably the guy that's the best player in the NBA, I think, that you would want for, for a playoff series in Giannis. It's going to be incredible. And I can just say, after watching a lot of Jim Boylan coach games, a lot of Ryan Archidiacono minutes, a lot of minutes from guys late in the regular season that we don't remember their names Hardly then or now. It's it's much appreciated from me, everyone that's watched this Bulls team, everyone certainly at the station and Bulls fans, how cool this is going to be regardless of the outcome, I think. Cody, as always, man, I appreciate the time and the information. Enjoy yourself tonight. I'll talk to you soon. Yep, take care, Lawrence. That is Cody Westerland. He covers the Bulls for us here at The Score, and he does a terrific job of doing it. We need to take a break. I want to talk about what I asked Cody about and that, that feeling of, being able to enjoy Bulls basketball in a way that we haven't in a while. That's next here on The Score. Lawrence Holmes, noon to two on Sports Radio 670 The Score and 670thescore.com in Odyssey Station. Man, it's nice to be sitting here on the eve of an important playoff game that you think your team actually has a chance of winning. Now, granted... Part of the reason that you think that they have a chance of winning is because there's it's changed. The calculus has changed. Chris Middleton being out there should matter. It should be a positive for the Bulls that one of the better players on the Bucks is not available. 
No one wants him to be injured, but the truth is that he is. And there's an opportunity here for the Bulls to take advantage of it. They've done an incredible job with game planning in the first two games of this series. And then the execution went up from game one to game two. And we saw the Bulls do all the things that they need to do to win. They were able to get the efficient scoring output from DeMar DeRozan. And Vooch hit threes. And they played wonderful defense. And even though Giannis got 33-18-9, they were in it. And then they closed the door on the Bucks. And that's not that's not an easy thing to do. This Bucks team is still dangerous. I'm a Drew Holiday stand that dude could go off tonight in place of Chris Middleton. Bobby Portis is going to play in this series and he's going to be angry and I hope he's going to be wearing goggles cuz that would just be funny to me. Maybe just to me, but to me. And being able to sit here and go, man, later on tonight, it's not us going, can the Bulls salvage a game in this series? It's us being like, yo, if the Bulls win tonight, man, it's going to be crazy. You couple that with the fact that it's going to be 82 and sunny tomorrow, man, we might act a damn fool up in here. I'll talk with Matt Spiegel next here on The Score. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. 